Welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, Episode 29, The Dynamic Self, The Addict Self, and The Infinite Self, Learning Who We Truly Are. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is John Dupuy and Dr. Bob Weathers and Douglas Prater, and we are back for, I think, Episode 29, and it is the same day as last time because we usually do three of these things in a row, so we... uh, uh, it's really great. And we seem to get, uh, you know, as we get warmed up, we just have more fun and uh, just things flow or more fun or we cry more. I don't know, whatever. It just gets yeah. deeper mm-hmm. and better as we roll. And, um, well, Bob, you had mentioned something that you wanted to, to talk mm-hmm. about and to kind of a follow up from our last episode. So why don't you go ahead and lead? Yeah. Yeah. I loved our last episode, John and Doug, as we looked at, uh, uh, going home to be with family and how we manage the various uh, feelings that come up. We, we talked, Doug, you talked really like helpfully into the shame that can arise. And John, you presented strategies for, for moving through that, whether it be uh, what psychology would call self-regulation strategies. We talked about co-regulation in terms of support from others, including uh, in self, uh, self-help programs, uh, including in, uh, this community, that, that our online Facebook community. There's a, a, speaking of that community, there's been a conversation that's come up in the last week or two around uh, uh, how do we, uh, in recovery, navigate family reactions or other, other you know, friends' uh, reactions when, kind of contrary to what you would imagine, not everybody's happy with the changes um, uh, that, uh, that are bound to affect relationships so if I've been if I've been addicted to substance and am now sober, it realigns the orbits of of all of my significant relationships. And just to look at to to, to share here with the three of us, look at our own experiences, ideas, uh, suggestions, etc., around how to manage people's negative reactions to our positive recovery. Mm-hmm. And should we care? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yep. you know, and, and of course, families are um, when I when we started uh, passages to recovery. Thank you very much. Uh, and one of my jobs was doing the family workshop for about a year and a half, you know, and so I, so I was doing this three, you know, families would come in and meet with their kids and two or three families together. And we'd work with them. And boy, families are really complex. OK. And you have some families that are just so toxic. You just got to say sayonara and you got a divorce. You got to leave town. I mean, you just, you know, there's, there's no, there's no hope of redemption. And then there's, you know, pretty functional families, which, you know, in our biz, we don't see that. very much. Like I'd meet a healthy teenager and go, are you for real? Because, you know, I was working with struggling kids. And so, and then you have good enough families, you know, and the families that are good enough where, you know, I mean, nobody ever teaches you how to be a mama or a papa I mean, you, I guess you learn from it on television or your example of your parents, or I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it differently. But, you know, we're all just kind of making this up as we go. So there's a huge spectrum uh, when we come to families and not every uh, solution will be, you know, appropriate. I'll just say one antidote 
and then I'll shut up for a little while. Uh, I, I was working in the wilderness therapy. And, you know, each group of kids, you know, we'd start off with a group of kids back then. And, and we'd just go for eight weeks and work with them. And uh, I had a friend of mine that said, you know, I figured out how to do the perfect group. I finally figured out the formula. And I said, dude, it, that was for that group. It's going to be, no, I've got it. You know, he must, anyway, he must have been a one or five or something. Anyway, I'll get the Enneagram on this. But so anyway, uh, a couple of weeks later, he ended up duct taped to a tree and all the kids shoom, took off, you know, <laughs> <He was> like, <laughs> but I had the solution, you know, all that to say, <laughs> all that to say, you know, it's like, it's gotta, gotta be open to what, you know, how the Dharma unfolds or how, how, it, how it works, you know, in a particular situation. Yeah. I'm aware for myself uh, in my own addiction that a primary reason for me to use uh, was to manage the feelings that came up in relationships. <clears throat> and uh, owing to my own, uh, I think my own probably inborn temperament, but also um, my developmental experiences, I am, I am particularly prone to feelings of abandonment. And that's not everybody's uh, plight. It just happens to be mine. I'm not alone on the planet with that, but there's plenty of people that don't have that burden to bear. And so how that's manifested historically for me uh, has been some combination of what psychology calls pathological accommodation, which is that I accommodate myself to what I mentioned other people want or need me to be in order to sustain closeness. <clears throat> and when that hasn't been effective, and I think increasingly across my adulthood, I began to struggle with that because it's less and less okay with me to bend myself to a pretzel. But then I was left losing my, uh, my drug. My drug of choice was, was uh, probably pseudo-intimacy. And so the, then, at, so for me in midlife is where my own uh, alcohol and, and drug use really began to uh, pick up steam, seriously pick up steam and become a really full-on addiction. And it was really in relationship to relationship, my, my addiction. And so for me to begin to address my addictive behaviors was going to get me, I was going to, I was going to be pulling back away from the anesthetic I had used to manage this feeling of abandonment. <clears throat> and so I had to begin to develop resources within as well as resources between that would help me connect with people, not in a pseudo way, but in a, in a genuine way. I'm still working on that. I'll give you guys an example. Yesterday I went to a refuge recovery meeting. I'm very involved in refuge recovery. And in the meeting, there were a couple of instances where somebody said something directed at me that was uh, in the tone of advice or interpretation. And uh, this is something I would never have done, you guys, five years ago, as recently as five years ago, is in both cases, I got pissed. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just confronted the situation there. And I'm, 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 I'm not as proud about that as I am about what came later. Five minutes later, I actually commented on why I now do that. <laughs> and this would be like the, the third person witness coming in and saying, I have to do that because if I don't confront something that's not okay with me, then that's one step closer to relapse for me. So this is, this is how I protect my recovery is by being more assertive. And so no longer the pathological accommodator. I can still accommodate, um, but I have to be very careful about that because that's a, that's a slippery slope for me. Yeah. And so... This business of then of you can imagine then how this is ramified into my personal relationships with family and friends. 
Bob the accommodating one is now Bob the asshole. <laughs> and why don't you go back to drinking? You seem to be so much nicer then. <laughs> so I just want to throw that out there as one instance of how this can get activated. And this, this is autobiographical. I think there's infinite variations on this. But it's like what would look good on the one hand, Bob, stop drinking and drugging. And we want you back. Well, it depends on which 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 me you want back. Yeah. <laughs> it gets down to that, and and at least in sincere recovery, Doug, you and I are neck deep in this, and John, you have your own version of it in terms of your own experience with depression. Is that if transformation or recovery is going to happen, it's going to be recovery of my true self, and my true self may not have shown up that much prior to my addiction, much less during my addiction. So. Bob, you're speaking into something very, very real for me. I can't even begin to tell you how much that resonates. It's uh, certainly been with me throughout my life, the tendency towards pathological accommodation and keeping that true self hidden as I tend to the needs and desires of others and try to be play into what everybody wants from me and expects from me and taking care of their needs at the cost of my own, even down to mundane little things like which music are we going to listen to today? Where are we going to eat dinner? You know, it's what do you prefer? Because I would repress all this. Um, I am very strongly introverted too. And a part of that is that finally, when I get some time to myself, I can let Doug out and do the things that I want to do, read the books I want to read, watch my movies, whatever the case may be. And I think that in large part, uh, drinking was a way of trying to reclaim that little bit of autonomy instead of playing into what everybody else wanted all the time, yes. albeit an incredibly unhealthy one. Um, one of the things that happened as I started to recover, and I, I mentioned briefly in a previous episode the story of uh, putting, putting my profile on a dating website. I didn't look for anybody. I wasn't trying to find a relationship actively or anything. It was just an announcement that I am comfortable being me now and reclaiming who I am and being okay with a person who is allowed to belong in the world. And at the beginning of my relationship with the woman who would become my wife, I made that choice that I was going to be myself firmly and not fall into that tendency for pathological accommodation. And it enabled us to develop a much stronger, healthier bond than I had ever experienced in my past before. And that, hey, that can, can, can I back you up? You, you, you had this phrase that's really interesting. I'm not sure I understood it. You said, be okay with a person that belongs to the world. Yeah, being okay with being a person that belongs in the world, mm-hmm. rather. In other words, part of my tendency towards pathological accommodation came from my lack of self-worth and believing that what I wanted, what I needed weren't important enough to impose anything onto anybody else. And this realization that I had a right to be here and that it was okay for me to have needs too was a really powerful revelation that allowed me to move forward and get healthy. It is this rebalancing of ego to not not a place where it's all selfishness, of course, but to a healthy center where I'm allowed to be in the world and have those needs. Doug, can I interject something? Just a thought came as I was listening to you. I don't know why this hasn't been so obvious to me before, but it becomes clear when I listen to you 
And it's in reference to my own experience, which is so parallel, it sounds like, to what you're saying. It'd be really interested to hear John's experience as well. Um, I don't, I know that as I began to immerse myself, uh, about 10 years ago, I began immersing myself in the literature uh, within psychology uh, around shame. So research has been done around shame, clinical theory, etc. So it was a more technical uh, exploration of shame, but it's certainly parallel to the more popular versions that have been out there with Bradshaw and others. Um, so I really steeped myself in that, wrote a book chapter on the topic of shame and so on. And even as I was writing it, was struggling with identifying shame in my own life, which would be radically apparent to probably anybody outside of my skin. But I, I, I wrote about it with great interest. It had certainly been a part of the clinical work I had done, uh, oftentimes the centerpiece of work. But as I'm listening to you right now, I'm getting, it feels like in a new way, how it is that pathological accommodation or whatever term we use for that, there's lots of uh, different language for that, uh, people-pleasing codependence, there's so many different literatures you know, that are languages for that, is that it effectively X's me out of existence, the way that you're talking about that. And I don't know, but by any other name, that sounds like shame. The shame that doesn't make it me worthwhile to listen to my own music, watch my own movies, read my own books. And it just kind of came in the back door for me. So I didn't grow up with messages about, Bob, you're a bad boy. I didn't grow up with that. It was more like, Bob, you're only a good boy if you accommodate. And so the shadow side of all of that, it's, it's all shadow side in many ways, it's, that's shame. It's a, it's a negation of self. It's a negation of Doug, a negation of Bob. And, and now I understand how shame is, is so much at the core of my own psychology, my own vulnerabilities, and right at the, right at the core of my addiction, right at the core of my addiction. If I don't heal that shame, what we're talking about, then I will continue to be addicted or be, continue to be incredibly vulnerable to relapse. Well, Bob, I have a question for you. I know you've done, a, I mean, you know, the third person just doing the research and writing about shame, but, you know, on your journey right now, you know, how's it going? You know, um, this has been a big issue, and where do you see yourself at this point in your journey? I'm going to answer briefly. I think you spent a lot of time on that. I appreciate you asking that. I'm giving a presentation in a park next Saturday, a week from today, and I'm working on it right now. The entire presentation is to a lay group. Um, uh, uh, and it will be on self-compassion. Mm. And one of the things that I want to bring to this group, these are not, these are not integral folk. These are not uh, Buddhist practitioners. These are not meditators. <laughs> and so we'll see how this goes. I want to introduce them to the forgiveness practice that we've worked on here uh, with I Awake, with integral recovery, and even, even with the, the tracks that we're developing right now with you, Doug. And it's to introduce this in the most... Uh, uh, ideally the most kind of translatable of ways to present to them. And so my short answer to you, uh, John, is that with practice that I've done over the years, including uh, there's two things that really stand out to me. One is the forgiveness practice that I do on my own, which is an internal practice, which is very much peopled by people in my life. I mean, it's very interpersonal, but it's, it's an internal meditative practice. That on the one hand, and the second thing, and I'm so grateful to the various uh, support group traditions uh, for me it's been AA refuge recovery and integral recovery now is that the transparency with my real self Doug the things that, that you're talking about the things that I hid I feel like I've, there's no comparison of 
Bob Weathers five years ago and Bob Weathers now because I was so incredibly hidden. I still incline towards that subconsciously having to work on this, but I'm out, I'm out in the world with myself in a way that I've never been before. And so it's like those muscles get almost daily practice for me. And in five years of practice, uh, I've gotten a lot better at that. And it translates into, I'll tell you how it translates. On Wednesday night, I was listening to my partner, Colleen, talking, and I was present with her as she was sharing something, and I was fully present with her. And at some point, I began to share something that was significant to me. And for whatever reason, it triggered her. And in her being triggered, she began to criticize what I was saying. But what I was saying was so sacred to me. And so I went into this sinkhole right in the moment. This tied into all that we're talking about, all the ways I've accommodated myself. And the difference, you guys, um, was minor and major at the same time. It's minor because I said, honey, this doesn't feel good. Uh, it's major because I never did that before. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, kind of like in our last episode when I talked about the aftermath of having been with someone else in what I felt like was very much a bodhisattva kind of presence, mm -hmm. the aftermath of what got touched by, by, by Colleen's misattunement to me and my standing up for that, the aftermath is that it took me about a day to fully get back to center because it, it touched wounds that go all the way back for me. The good news is I wasn't doing that in isolation. And what I did, you guys, and to Colleen's credit, she moved towards me and held me and apologized. And so the healing is in, in, the, in the interaction. It didn't make it go away like that because the, the, the mind shaft that got opened is so associated with trauma for me across my entire lifetime. But what I did do is we redirected it so that by, by the middle of the morning of the next day, Bob Weathers is back again. And so that's, that's as good as it gets, John, but that's really good. So somebody might say, that's awful subtle. That's a very subtle change. But for me, it's monumental. No, that's a huge, yeah, it's a huge change. Instead of going down the rabbit hole for, you know, weeks and, and drinking yourself or whatever yeah, into absolutely. almost yeah. non-existence. I've done all of that. You, you were, yeah. you, you, yeah. Yeah. And and the resilience, yes, and you yeah. get over it much quicker. It's not like it didn't hurt, mm -hmm. but it just you mm -hmm. just get through it mm -hmm. a lot more efficiently and, and a lot more healthily. John, you talk so much about grit, and I is a good example of it. I got up the next morning. Was I feeling all spiritual and wonderful? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was feeling a little bit uh, kind of weather worn. But did I do my meditation, my quiet time? I did more the next morning. And I didn't, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't really feel it, as I oftentimes do. Like this right. morning, I get up and I really felt it. But I did it anyway. And so the combination of Colleen's response, which was facilitated rather than rejecting. It's like we talked about in the last episode. There I am all aroused, and she's responding. I'm all extremely triggered with my trauma. She's responding in a way that I didn't expect in that place. And so there's a decoupling of old trauma right in that interaction. Does it happen immediately in terms of transforming everything? No. I get up the next morning. I continue my work. By mid-morning, I'm back to center. You know, and that, it's really important how you're bringing out how this, this healing needs to happen in all four quadrants, you know? And I tend to be like Mr. Interior Dude. I'll go in and just work with my stuff. But the fact that it can, you know, and that's, we, we talk about the four quadrants, the upper right being your body, upper left being your interior, lower left being your, your relational we space, and the lower right just being the out there, you know, the world, the universe, all the stuff. And, you know, I'm, you know, interior master, but 
doing that in a, <clears throat> a lower left context is very courageous. You know, cause, I mean, in, from where I'm sitting, because that's very, very hard for me to do and that, that we heal in relationship and that we need each other and that, um, that we can't do it by ourselves. I think, uh, you know, addiction almost by definition means you need help. You know, you need to work with others. You need support. You, you can't do it in a vacuum. And, you know, in most cases, uh, almost across the board. So, and we started talking about, you know, family and relationships and, um, what that evokes and how to take care of ourselves, you know, and, and I think early on we have to be, we really have to develop kind of a warrior uh, boundary setting thing, you know, and I've seen a lot of people I've known who failed in their recovery or relapse because they have to go home. They feel all codependent and everybody drinks. It's a drinking thing. And, and, and finally at some point, if they succeed, they, they have to set boundaries like, no, I can't go to Thanksgiving dinner because I'm so vulnerable now and everybody's drinking all the time. And I can't be around that. Maybe, maybe in a year or two, but not right now. So if you'd like to be with me, I'll come. We can go out and have coffee or something at Denny's or whatever, you know, meet someplace that's safe for me. And I, I you know, I, I made the decision I can't drink anymore because it was killing me, you know, and, and I'm not, that's not a judgment. And man, if you can, if you can, it's working for you. That's great. You know, but for me right now, this is what I need to do. And that is so humbling and it's so courageous and it, and it, uh, it's so necessary to kind of being able to, to hold the boundaries or like you're saying, Doug, you know, that really hurt, you know, or whatever it was in that moment. Of course, I know your partner and she's a very wise, you know, a learned woman. And so you, you can't expect that kind of reaction from everybody, but I think you do need to try to find a handful of people in your lives that you can be that open and vulnerable with. It's really, really important that we have, you know, people that can, can meet us in our, in our vulnerability and our pain and our joy, whatever it might be. You know, John, I really appreciate your use of that particular word, courageous, because, Bob, that's exactly the word that came up for me when I was hearing you uh, describe that experience a few moments ago is courage. And if you've heard me say this before, you'll probably hear me say it again. But one of the things I have learned and realized recently that has been so important to my recovery, it is just kind of a cool little factoid, is that courage shares the same root as the romantic language word for heart. In other words, courage comes from here, from your heart, and it is in this heart-centered living that we get out of our heads and find a different way of being in the world and meeting in the world, and that's so important to becoming a healthy, well-rounded person. I appreciate, John, what you said, too, about drawing boundaries, which requires a lot of courage as well to, to set those boundaries when we're used to that pathological accommodation in our right. lives. But, uh, you know, it's it's absolutely critical and things that seem like a very small step standing up for yourself and, and saying how something made you feel uh, is really a tremendous leap forward in courage. And there is healing in that when you see the reactions to it, there is a, a strengthening of your ability to continue to do so and realign with what is a healthy way of being here and connecting with others in that dimension in that uh, lower left quadrant. You know, and we need both, you know, because those are two the kind of yin and yang of, of kind of self-courage. The one is to being able to be vulnerable and, uh, you know, in relationship with others and the other being able to say, no, you know, I can't do this, you know, with all, with all due respect and all great love, I can't be there with you if you're going to be drinking. I just am not strong enough to do that right now. And um, my wife, who's a really 
successful, really good therapist for many years. He said, John, you're a lower left chicken. And, <laughs> and I, you know, and I would protest, you know, <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, it's like, I'm pretty courageous in my interior work and in my facing my stuff and the darkness of the universe and all that stuff. But in relationship, it's been something where I'm like, you were saying you're the accommodator. I'm the see you later. You know, I, I tend to withdraw <laughs> and <laughs> that's my pathological pattern. So to hang in there and to be vulnerable and to hear what, you know, your stuff that you're saying, uh, Bob, it's like, oh, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I, especially when I'm down, I really tend to isolate, you know, and I'm, I'm struggling with stuff, which I have been for the last week or so, which I told you about. And yeah, you gotta, you know, and one of, one of the, um, the rules of, you know, depression survival and relapse prevention is to stay connected, you know, so knowing to do the right thing at the right moment. Uh, and it takes both, you know, and again, it takes the masculine and the feminine, you know, we have this thing, the right brain, the left brain, the receptive, the linear, go out and get things done. You know, you just have to bring this together in a way that, that serves us and serves our people and serves what we're here to do on the planet, our lives. I think there's a particular danger we need to be aware of as we expand in our sense of spirituality that a lot of spiritual circles and a lot of spiritual teachings center on the idea of selflessness. And even in our last episode, we were talking about being of service and being of service to others. And those are both selflessness and service, beautiful, beautiful things. But again, there is this this balance of, of courage and, and dissolution of ego is not a healthy solution either. That's a form of escaping from being fully present with the now because you are part of all that. There, there, there is a you that is part of all that. I mean, what that you is, is the subject of some debate and it's a fascinating topic, but the importance is that whatever you are, you are included in that and, and the courage and the ego strength to recognize when to be selflessness when to be selfless and when to be a little bit selfish and assert your needs or take time for those needs is critical to preventing relapses and being healthy in relationships. And you got to have a self before you can be selfless, you know, and if you haven't formed a self, you know, you don't have to, you know, a, a six year old infant to be selfless. Well, they're not even there yet, you know, and, and a lot of times this idea, you know, you get the, you get the chicken before the egg, the egg before the chicken. I know, but you got an egg, half an egg before you can be a chicken. So before you can actually get into these non-dual things in a healthy way, where it doesn't become some psychosis or some problem because you haven't really developed a strong sense of ego identity, which is absolutely necessary in being actualized and healthy. And even a spiritual human being, you're, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. And I think, uh, a lot of that, you know, the, the selflessness thing has really been a pathology. I mean, because you, because uh, it doesn't honor the relative self, which has to be brought to the picture. Uh, and you have to have those structures in order to, uh, to eventually let go of them. So, you know, it's not, you're not teaching, you know, non-dual tools. Well, who, I think we were talking before we started the show, we were talking about they're finding there needs to be more and more programs just to help young men become men or boys to become men because they're really not that kind of support in a, in a, in our culture in a lot of ways. And so you have to become that solid, you know, yourself. Boom. Oh, that's Bob, you know, and Bob, when you walk in the room, it's like, hey, it's Bob, you know, you've got 
yourself, you know, pretty much done. Now, now then we have to loosen it up and translucent it and blah, blah, blah. But as long as we're still in this body, you know, we need, you know, it's, it's what gets us to the bus, you know, it's how we, it's how we uh, negotiate. And it's a channel through which the selfless self um, emerges and flows. It's transcend and include. We there transcend the self and include it because if we repress that self, then it comes into our shadow in a very oh, unhealthy it's a disaster. way. Yeah. Oh, it's a disaster. You know, I've been working on uh, the religion of tomorrow. Ken's, you know, here, let me just show everybody. <laughs> just to show you, I'm not a literary sissy. I mean, it's a big volume. <laughs> anyway, it's awesome. You know, I, I read, in fact, I'm using, I'm using uh, your tracks, um, um, stealing flow. I'll do it like 25 minutes to totally focus. And I was doing it too much before. And I really need to break it down. I take notes and I underline and stuff. But one thing that Ken was talking about in these levels of development, if, if it's not the healthy way of development, and according to Robert Keegan, the, the Harvard developmentalist, he says that, that the subject, the I of your last level of development becomes the object of the next. Okay. So you're the controlling eye, yeah, uh, man, uh, I just drink and do dope, you know, it's like, well, we get to the level where you're sober and you know, I have an addiction, but I'm not an addict because that's no longer controlling me. It's still there as an object and I have to account for it, you know? And he says that there's two things that can happen at these, at these, these early levels or even advanced levels, but he was talking about the early levels. We get a fixation someplace, we get stuck and either become an allergy, like total rejection like something bad happens sexually, for example, and you just know sex becomes bad, you know, evil, let's just be disembodied out of the Catholic church for a couple of thousand years uh, in a lot of cases. And then you have the other one that becomes the addict that didn't get some essential need satisfied. So it's crazy more and more and more. So either way you have these kind of, and they're not objects. They are subjects that are kind of hidden subjects that take over and control you either through the rejection or the I got it, have it thing. And so I think a lot of times in this work, when we, we e- either way can cause train wrecks. And probably when those two comes together, it's even a bigger train wreck. And I was trying to figure out maybe this accounts for, you know, sociopaths and serial killers and stuff like that. When you have their total rejection and the total addiction that come together at the same time, it even creates a, a, a greater pathology and blocks any kind of empathy or conscience development. But anyway, that's kind of theoretical. But we do have to go back and own that stuff, you know, and get in right relationship and let it speak its stuff. And if you've been an addict or you're an art addict, you know, in early recovery or even before recovery, you always have the addict self trying to justify whatever you're doing. It's almost like this independent self that's in yourself calling the shots at that time. And it begins to get weaker and your healthy self begins to grow and, and you become more, you know, uh, integrated. So, John, you said something really, really important in there. You said a lot of really important things, but one, Sorry, in particular, yeah, one in particular that I would just like to underscore because this matters so much, which is that those things that become our allergies and our addictions are not objects. They are hidden subjects. Yep, in order for something to become an object, you have to include it in a healthy way. Otherwise, it remains that hidden subject that still controls a part of your experience, even though you're no longer seeing it. You know, in earlier generations, that's probably what we were talking about, demon possession, you know, because it does, you do seem to have this kind of almost semi-independent entity that takes over and controls your life. And now that we've kind of grown or got a little, you know, beyond, well, some of us anyway, in, in, in forest science and psychology and stuff like that. But it's often 
addiction does feel like possession. You know, like you've got this monster that just wants you to kill yourself and use yourself into, you know, death and early death and oblivion. And it's right there. I mean, it has its own voice and it takes over. It's, it's, it's a crazy damn thing. So somewhere, somewhere in a psychodynamic way, uh, there, something happened. And that has to be accounted for. And there's a lot of other stuff. You know, you can't reduce it all to one factor. I mean, you have genetics and this and that and culture and God knows what else. But I think that's um, uh, something that calls us to having an effective interior uh, practice where we not only work on, you know, contacting God or spirituality or non-duality, all, spirit, all that stuff, but you also do the deep repair work to the, uh, the, the, the self-sense. Uh, you know, who we walk around because it gets really damaged and it really causes a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. And, you know, it's truly a waste. I had a thought here. I, I just listening and kind of interacting with all, all we've been talking about. Um, and it actually goes back to our, our previous podcast. I think Doug, uh, um, you were talking about being with family and, and, uh, uh not being sure that they were updating their, their, uh, files on, on Doug Prater uh, or Bob Weathers, whoever, uh, that, and, and what that feels like, you know, it's, and, and then, and then what it feels like to identify with that, that kind of uh, fixation speaking of, I had this, I had this thought and it's tied into the topic we introduced about relationships. Um, Doug, you started by saying that with, with your wife right now that you all met, if I'm understanding that you met, when you came to a place of resolve to really open yourself to being in the world again. And uh, we haven't talked about this, or if we have, I've forgotten in terms of the timing around your recovery, but I'm assuming that was while you were already uh, beginning in recovery. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. John, you made a comment about, you know, um, my partner and what it's like to be with somebody who's wise and therapeutic in terms of her personality, her presence. And, and I'm grateful for that. But I, Doug, I'm, I met Colleen, five years before I entered into recovery. So we've, we, we began with me moving into more and more active addiction uh, with a preceding history of that, none of which was out. All of it, was, most of which was hidden and or kind of mutually held in some form of minimization or denial. But uh, the, the shit really hit the fan midway through our relationship. We're in our eighth year now. So five years ago, we were, we were down the road a fair way before I, really entered into abstinence and, and really began to commit myself to recovery. And, and so those middle years, as I think of them in terms of the context of our relationship, were really storming. Not that she didn't have capacity, not that I didn't have capacity. We both have a lot of experience working in the field of introspection and self-reflection and so on regarding the work that we do. But it was really stormy, and, and not all of that's reducible to just what it's like to be early in recovery biologically. That would be all the the work on pause, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, a lot of it was owing to thinking of a mobile hanging over a child's uh, crib. That mobile, you, 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 you touch one of the animals and it affects all the other animals in that, or stars or whatever. And it's like that mobile really was thrown into chaos as I entered into, it was already in chaos, but it was thrown into a different kind of, uh, of uh, chaos with my entering into recovery. And, and, and a key point that we've gained over time Psychology refers to it as uh, uh, earned security. How we've earned security in our relationship has been a gradual move over time. And on a bad day or a bad week, we can forget this. I can forget it. Colleen can forget it. Sure. 
but, but uh, on a good day, what we've done is we've successfully navigated from a previous position of what psychology calls a dispositional attribution. It's a long phrase, but what it means is that when you fuck up, I attribute that to your disposition, to something flawed in your character. So it makes sense. That's the dispositional attribution. And that's a kissing cousin of a shame. It's just like, if we see ourselves that way, if others see us that way, it results in a feeling of being shamed. But there's a move over time, and it was implied in what you were saying in the last podcast, Doug, is it's as a move to a second position. And psychology calls that a situational attribution. Is that I move from attributing what just happened to something fundamentally flawed in your character to there's something circumstantial, something situational, and let's, let's attack that. And so in a sense, you externalize the problem. It's no longer Doug Prater that's flawed or Bob Weathers. It's the addiction or whatever the behavior is. Let's turn our guns on that together. And so we create a, a, a there's, there's like a triangle. Now we're both going towards that. And, and when Colleen and I lose that perspective, we try to regain that. It's not, it's not this isn't theoretical. You're just doing it instinctively. But what the, the healing heart wants is to not be blamed or relegated to the slag heap for having made a mistake, but rather let's find grace and then let's, let's, uh, let's fix it, let's correct it. So I, all of that's been floating in my mind as we've been talking. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful thought, the dispositional attribution to in the research on developing grit. And as the parent of a young girl, I've been reading a lot about how to develop traits like grit in children. And it's the same thing, you praise the action and not the character. That's it. That's it. That's um, it. Yeah, it's it's you did something bad, not you are bad. You yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. I guess it's not not necessarily bad to tell somebody that they're good, but there is some danger, perhaps, in attributing intelligence to somebody. You are smart, therefore, you develop this expectation. It's you worked hard, you studied hard, you did a good thing. Or that was and, a brilliant thing you just said, or that was you know. Uh, what what a you know what a smart paper you just wrote or you know yeah. what a, yeah. yeah I feel like yeah. I feel like I feel like I'm Exhibit A on how not to parent. <laughs> and I've had any number of conversations with Amanda. Like, oh, yeah. my, my adult daughter Amanda, who herself went into the mental health field, that's an interesting piece. Is just she's the third generation in the Weathers plan of going into psychiatry, psychology, or social work. But but I grew up with Amanda. Literally, you guys, we would pray this prayer regularly. Thank you, God. In fact, it was on her insistence. Thank you, God, because Amanda is so beautiful. She's so smart, and she has so much love in her heart. And it might be only the latter one. (laughs) The other two, you know, I guess I missed school the day that they taught this attribution business. But I think you've got it spot on, Doug, is that to to shift over to the behavior. And I have to tell you, when I was in my most recent, recent visit with her, there were, there were other relatives present that were saying things like, that's a bad boy to my grandson, and I want to punch their lights out. <laughs> you know, Whether it's a good attribution or a negative attribution, in either case, it's this blanket observation about somebody's character that doesn't allow for uh, a variation or individuality. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes away the autonomy, too. It takes yes, away yeah, our freedom yeah. to, to change and grow yeah. and yeah, you know, especially yeah. as we transition into sobriety and, and think about these past relationships with our family, yeah. with our yeah. partners and significant others, there is, there needs to be the possibility of 
change that's allowed in yeah. that and the attribution you are something takes that freedom that power away yeah and that's kind of the difference mm-hmm. uh, between guilt and shame guilt is i did mm-hmm. something bad and i feel mm-hmm. bad about it mm-hmm. you know and shame is i am bad and that's just mm-hmm. the way it is and it's not going to get me better and i suck you know, that sort of thing and i want to say a, a, inter- a thing that's brought up this is a conversation and we're talking about you know um uh, feminine or uh, mother love and father love and how we need both and hopefully it's some you know it can you know can come from it doesn't matter you know what your your uh you know your sexual type is it can come from either or some mix thereof but mother love is like you're this precious being in the world you're perfect the way you are i love you for your essence Mm -hmm. and your beauty perfect however it ain't enough father love is like i love you and i will give you approbation when you do the right thing you know, uh, and so, and, and if you get too much of, you know, the one, you've got to perform to be good, blah, 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 that gets all bent out of shape and you become, you know, you're, you're chasing, you know, accomplishments and everything so you can feel okay inside. The other one becomes, can turn into a total narcissistic thing. I don't do shit. I'm just perfect the way I am. I just sit here on my butt, you know, and, not, you know, not do what I need to do. So you kind of have both. And that's when, you know, you in, in psychology is when you have a good enough uh, interjected mother and father, they call, what they call a constancy. Uh, um, anyway, you have that ability to parent health. yourself. <laughs> yeah, health, sanity. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I am. I am okay. I am good, you know. And, some, you know, I get through all the, the different layers of my dysfunction. Man, it's really good down there. But also, you know, I, I have to show up and I have to practice and I have to, to really work hard to become the uh, – the best version of myself. And I heard, oh, who's it? Somebody talked about this the other day. They, they called it grunt instead of grit. It's like you have, you have talent, grunt equals skill plus more grunt equals magic, you know? So I guess when they, you know, you press into it and you don't just accept uh, your complacency and, and, you know, maybe you do start off with some kind of natural inclination of, you know, you just can't stop pounding things on the table when you're a little kid and irritating the hell out of everybody. You're a drummer, you know, it's trying to emerge. And then you have to take that talent and just work with it or, or that proclivity until it becomes a talent or a skill. And then it can become magic as we, as we really get into those flow states and, and uh, we kind of clean up the, uh, you know, the vehicle good enough. You know, I don't think it's the, I'm pretty darn sure that John, if never going to be perfect, you know, but good enough, you know, to get the job done and are near perfect. Uh, and, and, or, or maybe our imperfection is perfect and we have to, uh, realize that's how the, uh, you know, that's how the pearl is made through uh, all our imperfections and, and uh, working on this stuff. So. As we transition into that parenting of ourselves, there's certainly some wisdom and some intuition involved in knowing when to bring in which dynamic. And no matter how much we develop the ability to take the witness perspective and the mindfulness perspective, which certainly helps in knowing which dynamic to invoke at which time. That's why the relationship quadrant is so important too, because oftentimes these objective views of others can help us see things that we're still experiencing from a subject stage that they're seeing very differently. And leaning into that and and being willingness to, or being willing to hear those things while also accepting that those perceptions aren't always necessarily accurate either takes, well, courage and, and continually leaning into it, wisdom and growth, and it's an ongoing journey. Doug, you typically correspond and sign off by writing namaste and a confession. Yesterday, 
I received one of your emails and I looked up Namaste. I just wanted to see what uh, Wikipedia had to say about it or Google. And uh, in essence, I know that you know this, but it was helpful for me to remember that it's, I bow to the divine in you. And so when I responded, I wrote Namaste. I don't typically do that, but I did it with, with intention. I actually did some homework before that. And it came up, John, for me as I was listening to you just now. It's like, how do we hold namaste? How do I do that with my daughter? I can hardly help but see God in Amanda. Uh, it's only ever been the case. Hold that in the absolute dimension. Uh, uh, and, and us with one another at the same time that we hold fidelity to the relative dimension, which is, damn it, you need to change that behavior and to hold both of those. In fact, I think that the one serves the other. If I hold you in namaste consciousness, then you know when I correct you that I've not forgotten your essential nature, which is divine. Whereas if I come at you and I've, and I've slipped into that kind of dispositional attribution, you're going to feel that and it's going to evoke non-compliance in most sane people. And then we're back down the, the rabbit hole. So somehow about holding both relative and absolute, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the phrase um, that was coming to mind is like, you're better than that. If that can be said with great love, you yes. know, it's like yes. you're not reaching your, your potential. Yes. You are yeah. better than that. Do you really yeah. get that? And the answer may be, no, I don't. Well, let me stand to hold up the mirror and say, yes, yeah. you are. You know, that kind of that kind of strength and same time compassion and support and, and mirror I use the uh, the app Insight Timer for my meditation each day while I'm listening to iAwake tracks. I start the timer and put on my headphones and do my thing. But my profile on Insight Timer, I have a definition there of namaste, a sort oh, of yes. poem. It says, yeah. namaste, my soul honors your soul. I honor the love, light, beauty, truth, and kindness within you because it is also with me. In sharing these things, there is no distance and no difference between us. We are the same. We are one. Mm. That is beautiful, Douglas. Mm. And both you guys, uh, in your emails and your your communications, are so freaking loving, and and so <laughs> I read them. It's, oh man, I write these little things. Okay, let's do it. You know, so <laughs> you're really you got to go to the Facebook thing, and 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 I've been I know how to get into the secret Facebook group. You got to hire a Russian hacker. <laughs> and pay him about two grand and you can get you can get there but we, we've actually been talking about um about you know how we can open up and you know and respect the anonymity and you know the the privacy at the same time make it not so nearly impossible to become a part of it and and i everybody explained how we're going to do that and i went oh, okay so I want to say just one last word. I know we're wrapping up here. I just want to say a last word in reference to what you just said, John, about uh, Doug's and my um, kindness in our emails. I certainly experienced that with you, Doug. And I want to say a word about this. I don't know that I've ever spoken this, is that, is that when, I, when I write a text or write an email, I understand that I'm politically incorrect in my text because I'll write a tome. <laughs> And that's not cool with the text. Okay, all apologies included, is that there's something about completing an aesthetically kind of, uh, uh, it's like an aesthetic arc for me. If I can complete something that has, it's kind of along the idea of being kind to others that you mentioned, Doug. But what I wanted to name here is that it feels like an ultimate kindness to myself. 
I can somehow infuse even this little text with something, and sometimes it's just an emoji, as trite as those are, I don't select them randomly. And it's like some wish, it's like, yes, it's giving to the other, but I really think that I'm the beneficiary. <laughs> it's just something about being loving and kind, kind to the, the part of me that, that loves beauty. And it's like, here's a moment of beauty uh, in something as innocuous as a, as a directive in a text, you know? So anyway. I to say no, that. it's, it's great. Sometimes I'll read it. I'm so not worthy of this text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they taught us at grad school then thank you for noticing <laughs> very hard to say yeah i mean try this out bob i think you're one of the most beautiful kind intelligent heart man i've ever met seriously and that's that's the darn truth of it and you're supposed to say thank you for noticing thank you for noticing that Thank you, John. Yeah. Anyway, so blessings on you guys. And uh, look, hey, it's a journey. You know, integral integral recovery is a journey. Um, There's no, you know, it just keeps going. Maybe. uh, And and remember, all all the recovery you do in this life will follow you to the next. So that's what some of the the uh, the greatest teachers on reincarnation and saying this, I'm not saying this so, but they say, if it is so, this is what follows. You know, this is what follows the good you've done. So let, let's hope that is so, and we're building good foundation for, you know, those who come after us, whether we're there or not, but we're always going to be there in some, some aspect. You know, this is all that's one thing going on here. So anyway, with that little uh, non-dual esoteric thing, why don't we uh, close this one up and thank you very much for being here with us again. We love you sending your questions, get the, um, get the, um, uh, the meditation track, I think it's Deep Delta. That is one of our favorites. It's there for you to use and start this practice. You know, every day, start doing the work. So anyway, much respect and love. God bless. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.